0: You're listening to NapaBroadcasting.com. Thanks for joining us here at Napa Broadcasting. The brilliant David Remnick in The Current New Yorker talks about the moral emergency that we face as a nation. Our national leadership at best is a moral vacuum. At worst, a corrosive force, an autoimmune disease, eating at the very fabric of the country. The events of late only serve to support that idea. It does no good to hold the Pollyanna-ish belief that it will all be all right that we've been through this before, that the democratic institutions that Madison designed and the moral framework that it was built on can withstand what we face today. This is no mere discussion of guns or violence. The events, the violence of the past week against political enemies, against struggling migrants, racism, and violence against the Jews are the traditional incantations of hate, division, and authoritarianism our national leaders seem incapable of stemming the tide. Perhaps then it has to be left to local leaders in local communities, one by one, town by town, to make the clarion call. Among those leaders in this community is my guest today, Rabbi Niles Goldstein of Congregation Beth Shalom. It is always my pleasure to welcome Rabbi Goldstein here to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Well, it's uh, great to have you here. Thank you for taking the time to come in. I want to begin by talking a little bit about the event that that you organized, the community gathering, bringing people together to talk about the events in Pittsburgh and and sort of the broader framework of events, and a little bit about what you took in from that event last night.
1: Well, you know, I should just start by saying Saturday morning when, when I woke up. I wasn't even aware of of what had happened in Pittsburgh, but there was a text waiting for me from the new police chief, Robert Plummer, saying, uh, is there anything I can do for you or for your congregation? And that's when I found out um, that 11 Jewish men and women had been killed um, while worshiping. I would say over the next 24 hours, um, after first making sure that we had a police presence at the the congregation, um, I called people I I knew, tried to gather appropriate speakers because I knew, like many, probably most communities around the country, we wanted to have a memorial service for for the victims and uh, a show of of unity. Uh, So uh, Chief Plummer was one of the speakers I contacted, Mayor uh, Jill Teckle, some other clergy friends of mine, and uh, Gordon Lustig uh, sang music. And we organized um, uh, what I think many people felt was a very moving it uh, wasn't a service, but just kind of a gathering last night at, at the synagogue. We probably had 400 people um, from every walk of life, different faith traditions, different organizations. And at one point, uh, I opened up the floor and we just had people talk for, you know, 15, 20 minutes about how they were feeling, what they were experiencing, their their anger, their sorrow. Um, several people had connections to Squirrel Hill um, and and talked about what that was like. In many ways, it reminded me a little bit of like what it was like when I was living in New York right after 9-11, and I had a, a downtown Manhattan congregation, and we did something very similar uh, during the Jewish High Holy Days. So it was, it was a moving event, but it was something that I and my lay leadership knew needed to be done as quickly as we could pull it off.
0: Talk about the way in which you make the distinction. If there is one for you between something like the memorial services and things after 911 and something like Pittsburgh because 911 was really an attack on the country in a mm-hmm. broad sense and the country came together in a unified way in its response to that the violence that we've seen of late whether it was the bomb attempts against political enemies the the racism that we see Against refugees that that might come into the country, and of course these attacks in Pittsburgh, all of those things are very specific. It's mm-hmm. not the the broad sense of the country being attacked. Talk about how you see that distinction, and and what kind of difference it makes. Well, I do think you're right. I, I think uh,
1: that whether you're talking about nine eleven or Pearl Harbor, you know those were attacks on on our nation, on our country. But I do think that. Uh, the um, attempted bombings on on public figures, um, the, the mass murder in Pittsburgh. They may not have been attacks on the country as a whole, but they were attacks on our values. And as I was talking about last night, those values that define what it is to be an American, at least in my estimation, decency, respect, civility, uh, compassion for others, um, love of neighbor, uh, I don't see a lot of those values uh, right now uh, in, in the polarized society we live in. So I do think what happened in Pittsburgh was an event with national reverberations, which is why almost every city in the country has had some form of a memorial service. But, but I agree, you know, it was not an attack on, on the country as a whole. Um, but I, I think the reason it is still having so many repercussions is because uh, aside from the carnage, um, the anti-Semitism at, at the core of it and the hatred is really just uh, a manifestation a, a horrific manifestation of a lot of the emotions um, that, that we've been seeing
0: for months and, and years. Right. I mean, there is the sense of there being this, in, in David Remnick's phrase, a kind of moral vacuum that we are facing now, a moral cri- a moral emergency, mm-hmm. I think, is the phrase that he uses in his piece this week. Uh,
1: and I think that a lot of people are feeling a kind of moral exhaustion or emotional exhaustion because it seems like every day there's something new and and horrific. At least a, a large segment of, of the population feels that way.
0: And because we're not hearing national leaders address this and speak to this and, in that broader moral sense, what is the additional responsibility that, that you feel as a community leader, mm-hmm. as, as a moral leader in the community, to really take up that mantle and, and the pressure and the obligation that it creates?
1: Well, I certainly do feel the the pressure. Uh, I'm not going to call it the burden of leadership, but but the pressure of being a community leader, trying to help navigate my congregation, you know, through this this crisis. Uh, I had a colleague years ago in New York who said that the job of any uh, cleric, priest, minister, rabbi, imam worth his or her salt is to know when to comfort the afflicted, and when to afflict the comfortable. So I have to find that balance in my own career between offering comfort and, and support uh, during and, and after periods like like this, uh, but also knowing when to challenge people's complacency. Uh, and that's something that I think is so critical right now when so many of us um, feel that the, the political status quo uh, and even our social status quo is broken. You know, we have an election in, in what, six or seven days? Seven I mean, days. there are a lot of things, you know, we can do to, to take action. Um, but this weekend, for me at least, was really just about trying to keep my community safe and trying to offer
0: comfort. There is the broader issue that that sits out there of anti-Semitism mm-hmm. as well. And you and I were talking a little bit before uh, we, we went did this, that, you know, all you have to look in at, for antecedents to this are the events in Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were elements of it there. They they were not dealt with at that time. They were not appropriately addressed at that time. And of course, on a national level, the fact that, that hate crimes, that anti-Semitic hate crimes are up, I think the latest figure that I heard from from ADL was 59%. Yeah. That's a pretty remarkable
1: number. But whatever it is. <laughs> whatever, yeah, 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 Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's very noteworthy. Uh, it's very disturbing. I agree. Uh, the seeds of Pittsburgh were, were planted in, in Charlottesville. Uh, and we had a president um, equivocating uh, about both sides. Well, I think Saturday showed us that um, white nationalism is not the equivalent uh, of uh, the radical left. I mean, both sides are not equal uh, in, in this uh, uh, matter. And um Yeah, I I just think we're living in a period now where there is just such a dearth of of moral leadership. Uh, Everything is transactional, and we really need leadership that has vision, um, that has compassion,
0: uh, and I'm just not seeing it, at least on the federal level. The fact that that so much of this is caught up in today— religion and race mm-hmm. is is certainly a major part of it. You know, I hear from people all the time who say, well, you know, we can go back to 1960, you know, 1968, 50, exactly 50 years ago, we had political assassination. We had riots in the street. We had all of those things. But the difference is that those things were absolutely political. Mm-hmm. They were about a response to the political actions of a president. They were a response to a war that was going on the civil rights movement got caught up in, in all of that. This is very different in terms of, of where the hate is focused, where the racism, the anti-Semitism is focused. There's something much more specific and much more morally deranged to what we're facing today, I would argue.
1: Well, I think you're right, and I don't think any of this is new. Sadly, I'm, I'm not surprised at what happened. Um There are two Americas right now, and the the anti-Semitic, racist, nationalist element, protectionist, anti-immigrant, you know, this goes back decades, and in some cases, centuries. So what we're seeing now, I think, and a lot of commentators are are discussing this, is what we're seeing that's different is that there is now uh, an environment where people like this uh, feel more comfortable. Right. to speak out in public or online uh, or, or act out, um, either in ways that are offensive and troubling or in ways that are homicidal. So I, I think there has always been this ugly strain within the American population, uh, probably that goes back to our founding. But I think what we're seeing now, um, because of uh, the lack of leadership, and, and in fact, because we have leadership that is fueling these these um, emotions, these hatreds. Uh, people like that are, are just feeling more comfortable to to be open.
0: And it's a it's a global phenomenon too. It is, I mean, yeah. as, as you probably know, the numbers on this far better than I. Anti-Semitism around the world is on the march. Yeah.
1: France, it's horrible. Uh, Russia is is really bad. Um, there there are problems all over the the world. Uh, that's for sure. And I think the turn to the right, you know, speaking globally, Brazil just uh, elected right. some uh, charismatic, you know, far-right politician. The Philippines have one. Hungary has one. Poland has one. I mean, you know, it goes on and on. I, and I would argue Israel has someone of that ilk. So the, the world is, is taking a turn um, to the right uh, and, and toward more nationalist leaders. And, you know, to me, that's a very disturbing uh, phenomenon.
0: How does the nationalism—I mean, this is a tricky question, but how does the nationalism that we see in Israel, mm-hmm. how does that impact this broader discussion, do you think? Do you think it has an impact? Well, the New York Times just
1: had a, an article uh, about how this issue, th- this murder in Pittsburgh, um, has really stirred up uh, some of the uh, conflicts between many um, in Israel right. and, and a lot of Jews you know, here in the diaspora— um you know, that in itself, we could spend an hour on, you know that or or more that that's a very difficult um conversation, but uh I'm not sure um that what is going on in in Israel is is directly related to what we're seeing here, but you know the the minister that Israel sent to Pittsburgh to speak at one of the memorial services is a guy named Naftali Bennett who, uh, in my opinion, is, is a far-right zealot um, with uh, advocating, you know, things uh, toward minority populations that I completely disagree with, you know, I don't think that was the best choice uh, to send over here.
0: Mm-hmm. Talk about the security concerns that you have for the congregation and, and what you sensed among members of the congregation over the weekend.
1: Well, there's a lot of anxiety. Um, I've gotten a lot of emails, a lot of calls, you know, my leadership and I are trying to figure out, you know, what is what is the best policy and, and procedure to follow. Um, the police cannot have a, a, a presence at our congregation every single day. Right. They can't afford it. They don't have the personnel, although we're grateful that, that they have for the last few days. Um, we're going to sit down and meet with local law enforcement we're going to review our current procedures, we're gonna to talk to other experts in the field. Like, like most synagogues um, around the country, we're trying to find a balance between making our people feel safe, knowing full well that we're a very soft target, right. but also maintaining an open door policy where people can feel welcome if we're having a, a worship service. And it's a very fine line to tread. I mean, I've gone to synagogues in Paris and Istanbul Where you go through very tight security, where you have to show like going to the airport. It's like going to the airport, more or less, right? Uh, And it it makes me feel safe, but it's not the most comfortable feeling in the world. And I hope we don't have to quite get to that level at synagogues in the United States. I don't know that we're there yet, Um, but you know, look at what happened in South Carolina a couple of years ago: twenty-six African American uh, uh, congregants were were killed uh, when they were doing Bible study. Right. So I don't have any illusions that we're going to be able to stop these kinds of incidents, but we're, we're working hard to, to figure out what, what is the best possible solution for us with, with our resources.
0: What do you think that, that local communities, that religious leaders in local communities can do to begin, or, or to say, to begin to try and tamp this down, to at least begin to address it within the most local context?
1: I think I've always uh, been involved in interfaith work. Um, The books I've written draw from lots of different faith traditions. Uh, I used to work for the Parliament of the World's Religions. Uh, So I've been a chaplain with law enforcement for many years. So I I think it's very important to work with people um, uh, across the denominational spectrum from different faith traditions Uh, And and I'm an active member of the Napa Interfaith Clergy Council. So I think the more we can do uh, uh, in terms of community events that bring in people from different backgrounds, different religions, um, the better. We are um, planning our second annual um, Breaking Bread uh, meeting at Crosswalk Church on November 17th. It's a Saturday. Last year, we did it to try to bring people together after the wildfires (laughs) Uh, now we want to do it again because we live in such a polarized, divisive time. And it's it's pretty hard to hate somebody after you've broken bread with them. So, so we're going to try to do more and more events like that.
0: Talk a little bit about the degree to which politics and religion—you know, the old joke, I mean, we've all heard this— you know, growing up, oh, you don't talk about politics and religion, and that's at the center of everything yeah, right now. Yeah. And and how you feel about that as as a religious leader, the degree to which politics is now so infused in, in all of this? Yeah.
1: Well, um, that's a good question. And I don't subscribe to that idea. I think I, I, you're right. Religion and politics are at the heart of so much about our Civilization, our right. culture, so I think it's okay to talk about them. You just need to talk about them with respect uh, and civility. Uh, you know, you don't necessarily talk about those things at the gym uh, or you know at Trader Joe's. But um, I, I just think uh, it's important that we have certain ground rules established. That I think at one time. Were, were maybe implicit in the fabric of this society and that now really aren't. And maybe the advent of social media is part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, wrote a piece for Newsweek in 1998 uh, uh, called My Online Synagogue when I ran a, a virtual synagogue from Microsoft and the internet was still pretty new. And, you know, I was talking about some of the Negative aspects of um, life online and I think we're starting starting to see them more and more It was 20 years ago I think I was prescient, but I know I wasn't the only one who was saying, you know This is this amazing new thing, but it but it has negative aspects to it So we're seeing more and more how religion and and politics especially politics um, is becoming uh, Warped and and mutated, you know when seen through the vacuum of, of social media so that's something else that either um, Facebook or Twitter has to figure out, or we as the users need to need to figure out. Because um, you know we're all living in these bubbles. I mean, I have people on uh, in my Facebook account who are uh, Trump supporters and Republicans, and I have you know more who are, are Democrats and and liberal. But I think it's important not to just unfriend someone if you don't like their their political views. Um, and I, I just think we need to have a higher tolerance uh, for for difference these days than we do, and okay. and social media I think can be really um, have a have a real corrosive effect.
0: How does social media, in your view, cut into and have a corrosive effect on sort of a broader moral discussion? Where do those two diverge?
1: Are, are you saying you know? Are you asking? Can social media provide a forum or a can
0: context? It, can it or does it only work against it? I
1: don't know. It's it's a good question. I don't know what the answer is. Um, my feeling is that social media is great in terms of um, making connections uh, and conveying data, you know, information. I've reconnected with friends I haven't seen in, in 20, right. 25 years as a result of Facebook but I don't think it's a great context within which to have serious, thoughtful dialogue. dialogue. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I, I just don't know that it works in that way. Right. And I'm not sure why, but I, I'm just not seeing it. I, I'm, I'm not seeing it, at least in my use of it. And, you know, I, I'm a moderate user of, of social media, but but I don't see it as being a, a, a great um a great forum for, for honest,
0: respectful discussion. Well, part of that, some would argue, is, is the anonymity of it, that you're not speaking to someone, you're not confronting them directly, they're not sitting in front of you. And, and that's really what local communities can do. I mean, this mm-hmm. gets back to, to some of the work that you were talking about before, some of the things that, that you're trying to do, mm-hmm. that if you put people in the same room together or they break bread together, as you say, it's harder to be disagreeable even if you disagree, then just anonymously or, or in some disembodied way on Facebook or Twitter or anywhere else.
1: I think that's right. I think it's really easy for people to um, speak loudly uh, to people they've never met or, or seen thousands of miles away without any kind of repercussion other than just getting unfriended. Um, I, you know, I, 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 don't know if we've spoken before about my practice of the martial arts. It's something I've done for many years. I train here in Napa and, and it's a good lesson for life. When I'm training with an opponent, you know, that opponent is really a, a partner, a, a sparring partner. So even though we're in opposition to each other, we don't hate each other. <laughs> we're, we're trying to make each other better uh, as a result of our engagement And I I would like to see that model applied to civic discourse. It's okay to have uh, an opponent. It's okay to debate with someone you don't agree with. But I think you have to figure out how to do that with respect and and civility. And I don't think social media is very good at encouraging that.
0: I mean, the thing we forget (laughs) is that, I mean, what you're talking about is how it has worked for, you know, 225, 230 mm-hmm. years, that it kind of worked. There have been ups and downs, and there have been, you know, issues, whether it was McCarthyism in the 50s or the Civil Rights Movement, and, and we could go on and on, or the labor movement at the turn of the century. There certainly have been upheavals along the way. And but by which, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, you know, even up until a few years ago, we still
1: had things right. like that. We had all these town halls. If we had a town hall today with this political climate there would probably be fistfights you know but even a few years ago people of different uh you know political proclivities were talking and debating in the same room and it wasn't filled with the kind of hate that i think we're seeing today talk
0: about that what what do you see when you look out there at that just from the point of view of a, a religious leader what do you see in terms of that hate in terms of the hostility
1: well, I see it manifested on, on posts online, in letters to the editor, you know, in interviews through the media. I'm not seeing a lot of it in my daily life, in my mm-hmm. daily interactions with people. Uh, I'm still relatively new to Napa, but um, but I I certainly you see, have a better group of people. Yeah, maybe I have a better group of people, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? Right. right. Um, so I haven't experienced a lot of it on a personal level, um, but I you know I see it all, all around us. Um, you know, as I said earlier, I, I don't think this is new, but I just think it's rearing its head more comfortably and more overtly now uh, because of our leadership in, in Washington. And while our president may not be the cause of what we saw in Charlottesville or in these uh, mail bombs or in Pittsburgh. He's certainly a symptom, uh, I think, of the divisiveness and polarization.
0: Well, he's a symptom, and he's fueling. Well, and he's fueling. Yeah, right. I think both are true. I right. think both are true. Yeah, and, and and he may not be the cause. Well, when you talk about anti-Semitism, and you have a you know a sense of the broad history of this, historically, how does that genie get back in the bottle?
1: You know, I don't know that it does, Jeff. I'm not, you know I've been a rabbi long enough to know, and I've been on this earth long enough to know that. You know, racism, anti-Semitism, misogyny. I don't know that these things are ever going to disappear, you know, until if you believe in the messianic age, you know, until the end of days, uh, until we have some kind of divine intervention. I think human nature is such that people um, uh, uh, often, not always, but often fall prey to their baser tribal instincts, uh, uh, hatred, um uh, fear of the other, you know, all of the things that, that we're seeing today have been around since time immemorial. So, and by the way, anti-Semitism, while it became much more um, uh, heinous and widespread under the Catholic Church, you know, uh, a thousand years ago with the Crusades and reached its apex with the Holocaust, anti-Semitism predated Christianity, There was Hellenistic anti Semitism. So I don't know that anti Semitism, for whatever reason, you know, we have scholars who spend time trying to figure that out. out. Yeah. I I don't know that it's ever going to go away, which is why I think we need to be vigilant, which is why um, I'm a Zionist. And while I don't agree with the policies of the current government in Israel, um, I believe it's very important to have a strong uh, Jewish nation state. so I think we just need to be vigilant and work as hard as we can to to build relationships with other people and to educate people, uh, in, in in our case, about uh, the Jewish faith and, and community. But I don't have any illusion that um, education is going to wipe out anti-Semitism.
0: Do you see things getting worse before they get better right now?
1: I don't know. I think we're on a, a precipice in America, and I think Pittsburgh really highlighted it. Um I don't know. I think either it's going to get better or it's going to get worse. I, I don't. <laughs> I, I don't think it's spoken like y- a rat right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's going to be incremental. My my gut is that it's not going to be incremental. That we're going to either see more of these relatively quickly, uh, or um, it'll get uh, better. You know, more more dramatically. But I really don't know which way it's going to go. I, I I'm heartened by all of these memorials that I've seen all over the country we Jew and Gentile, believer and atheist, you know, Democrat and Republican, where everyone are coming together. Uh, that's great. That's heartening. But um, I think it's too early to know yet.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit like the gatherings that happen and, and all the things that happen after mass shootings sometimes, mm-hmm. just in general. Mm-hmm. And we see this reaction to gun violence and, yeah. and people come together. It just never lasts very long.
1: No, it doesn't. And, you know, that points to, I think, uh, a deeper problem uh, that America has had for a very long time. Uh, and that is the issue of, of gun violence. We didn't talk about that last night at the memorial. Uh, but, you know, when when the president says that if the synagogue in Pittsburgh had a guy with, with a gun uh, standing by the door, and some synagogues have done that, you know, many haven't, that that would have uh, prevented this. Well, if someone shows up with an AR-15 or an AK-47 and hundreds and hundreds of rounds of ammunition, I don't know that one guy with a handgun By is going to stop it. By
0: the way, I mean, with respect to Pittsburgh, there were four police officers that were injured, that were shot that's in, right. in the melee yeah, that, that happened.
1: That's right. So I think until this country addresses uh, the how easy it is to um, procure Uh, these, these violent and powerful weapons of, of mass murder, these things are going to continue to happen. And no matter how many vigils we have, no matter how many memorials we have after school shootings, after movie theater shootings, after synagogue shootings, they're going to happen over and over and over again.
0: Well, stay safe. Rabbi Niles Goldstein, I thank you so much for coming in and sharing your thoughts with us.
1: Thanks, Jeff. I'm sorry to end on sort of a uh, dark note, but,
0: you but know, just this... remember it's always darkest before it turns pitch black. <laughs> That's
1: right. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to NapaBroadcasting.com, Napa Valley Radio for the way we live now.